Well, good morning. He is risen. And it is a welcome, welcome answer to hear this morning as we contemplate the resurrection of our Savior, as we think about this whole weekend where we have celebrated the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Last year was a unique Easter as we were not able to gather together, and so it makes this morning particularly sweet to be able to join together in fellowship with uh, the saints as the reason why we gather together each and every Sunday really culminates and is celebrated anew and in a special way on these Easter mornings. Where we come together, we join together in declaring that Christ is risen from the grave. This morning we're going to take a brief pause from our study in the Gospel of Matthew as we contemplate this morning Christ suffering his death and his resurrection. The very thing that we have been singing about all morning, what we have just celebrated together in the Lord's Supper, as we have partaken together, as we've, as we've thought and meditated upon the realities and the seriousness of the cross. A few years ago, one of the major news organizations was forced to issue a correction after they described Easter as a day celebrating the idea that Jesus did not die, but instead rose to heaven. They completely missed the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. And you can tell me, what's the significance of that? When you leave out the death and the burial, you undermine the joy. What's the point? In fact, there is no resurrection without that death and burial. The miracle, the story of his resurrection. They had conflated the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ with his ascension into heaven some 40 days later after the resurrection. Considering that Easter is so central to Christianity, it was quite a mistake by the religion's desk of one of the world's largest news organizations. And yet I would suggest they are not alone in misunderstanding this morning. I think there are many persons, even in churches, who have misunderstood the significance of this morning. There are many who have difficulty articulating why it is that Christ had to die, why he had to suffer, why this was necessary, and what exactly was accomplished by the resurrection. So as we remember and celebrate Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection this morning, I want us to consider the question, why did Christ have to suffer and die? Why? I want to provide nine reasons this morning for Christ's suffering, culminating with his death and his resurrection nearly 2,000 years ago. And the reason I want us to do this this morning, the reason I want us to think about these things and to meditate upon these things is because it will help create within us a greater joy as we celebrate the resurrection this morning. If we develop a right perspective and a right understanding about why Christ had to suffer and die, it will motivate our praise. It will energize our worship as we celebrate this morning, Christ is risen. So pray with me as we begin. Father, we join together this morning in celebrating the glorious work that was done so many years ago. 
Father, we thank you that because of that death, that burial, and that resurrection, we can join together and sing with hope. Hope for eternity. Knowing that this world is not all there is. Knowing that we do not stand. Knowing that we do not have to stand under the judgment of a wrathful but just God. Father, we thank you for the payment that was made for our sins. Father, help us this morning as we contemplate the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. That it would motivate our praise, that it would facilitate our worship. In your name, amen. Well, we'll jump right in. The first reason that I want to put before you this morning, that Jesus had to suffer and die, and this really lays the foundation for what we'll be looking at this morning, is that it was the plan of God. Now, maybe that isn't a surprise to some of you. You understand the sovereignty of God. You understand that God is in control. But I want to reiterate this. I want to make it abundantly clear that every aspect of Christ's life, his death, his burial, and the resurrection was part of the sovereign plan of God. He was always in control. Turn with me, if you will, to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. It's a well-known passage around this time of year specifically. As it talks about the, the suffering of the Messiah, the promised one who we know to be Jesus. And if you look down halfway through that chapter, really the second half of that chapter, down in verse 10, I'll read those final three verses, 10, 11, and 12. But here it becomes abundantly clear, unequivocally, unequivocally clear, that God was in control. For it says, But God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If, he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offering. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he humbled himself. He himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. There we see that it was the Lord's good pleasure and the Lord's plan. You also see there in verse 11 and 12 that he allowed himself, Christ, the servant, the Messiah, he allowed himself, he poured himself out to death. See, the father and son worked in concert so many years ago in the plan of God that he would suffer and die. This passage is important because it moves all of the events leading up to the death of Christ from the realm of man's control to the realm of God's control. And it also expresses here in Isaiah 53 several themes involved in the suffering of the Son. But what I want us to notice this morning is this passage clearly demonstrates it was God who put Jesus to death. Man did not. No man could kill the Messiah. Yes, they're culpable for putting him up on the cross. 
But it was Christ who had to breathe his last and choose to give up his spirit. It was the will of God to be glorified through the redemption of man that could only be accomplished through the suffering and death of a perfect sacrifice. We're going to look at this verse a little bit later, but Revelation 13.8 likewise affirms that this was the eternal plan of God, where it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. It was the eternal plan of God. The phrase from the foundation of the world specifically describes the one who is slain, Jesus Christ. But it likewise applies to the names of those written. Since both these events were established before the foundation of creation, before the work of creation began, God's plan of salvation, which centered around the suffering and the death of his son, was established before time began, before this world existed, before Adam and Eve fell, long before you and I took our first breath. And it's absolutely essential that we understand that Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection were part of God's original plan, or none of these other eight reasons make any sense at all. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, okay, it's the plan of God. It clearly says it is. But why was this his plan? Why did God's plan involve the cruel and unjust suffering of his son? I mean, this is a hard reality to grasp. How could it be a father, a loving father's plan to put his son to death? How could he purpose to do this? Well, to answer this question, we have to look at the rest of the reasons the son had to suffer and die. So the second illustration, second reason that the son had to suffer and die is because we needed and God needed to illustrate to us the ugliness of sin. Sin is an ugly thing. But like so many things in life, we become callous to it. We become used to it. Unfortunately, sin is all too common to us, and so we begin to become used to it. Like a hideous growth that you've had since birth, you walk around either unaware or forgetful that it's even there. Like a stench that you become accustomed to, so that it no longer makes you recoil in horror, sin has a way of making itself seem normal in our lives. In fact, sin is so normal, we have a hard time viewing it with anything that even begins to measure up to the horror God has of sin, to the way God views sin. If for even a fraction of a second, we were capable of seeing sin the way God sees it, if we saw the hatred God has for sin, even for a fraction of a second, I would suggest to you that you would never sin again. The reason you and I sin over and over is because we do not rightly weigh the ugliness, the vileness, and the dangerousness of sin. The suffering of Christ then helps to illustrate the vileness of sin. Think about what went on leading up to the cross the night before and the day of. His flesh was ripped apart as he was flogged over and over again. Flesh was torn as he was beaten, as he was punched. He was spat upon. Thorns 
pressed down and crushed into his skull. He had a bruised and bleeding face. Nails pierced his hands and his feet, sweat and blood dripping from his entire body. He was a person that was so abused, so bloody, so beaten, you would have turned your head away, recoiling in horror. That was to illustrate sin. Every lash, every wound, every moment of pain illustrates the profound pain caused by sin. It illustrates the state that we are all in prior to salvation. Scripture says that Christ became sin for us. That is, he took on the weight of sin. He illustrated in his flesh the horrific nature of sin. As he bore the weight of man's sin, specifically the weight of the punishment for man's sin. His suffering pulled back the veil and began to illustrate for us sin in all of its ugliness. As the perfect and sinless, innocent Son of God took lash after lash, blow after blow, nail after nail, to illustrate in his body the danger and the ugliness of sin. But it goes even further. Not only does Jesus' suffering illustrate the ugliness of sin, but a third reason Jesus' suffering death were necessary was because the only remedy for sin was a blood sacrifice. This may sound gruesome, but Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness, no relief from sin. Have you ever wondered why it is that so many civilizations throughout history have practiced some form of blood sacrifice? You ever contemplated that? Now don't misunderstand me, that doesn't make their worship right, it doesn't make their practice correct. It doesn't mean that they have been forgiven of their sins, but there is something ingrained within man from the beginning. Some understanding that blood is required to appease wrongdoing, that blood is required to satisfy a God. It is written on the heart of man. But like so many other things, Satan took what was true and he's perverted it. So that instead you end up with human sacrifice and other horrific practices intended to dilute or distract from the promise of the one true sacrifice slain before the foundation of the world. And so the forgiveness of sin requires blood. It requires the brutal letting of Jesus' blood as an atonement, as a payment for that sin. Every sinner bears upon their soul a mortal wound. That mortal wound is sin. The only remedy, the only solution to that terrible fate that awaits sinners at the hand of an angry God is the suffering and blood of a perfect, spotless lamb. Isaiah 53.5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Jesus' suffering and death, and specifically the spilling of his blood, was necessary to appease the wrath of God against sin. So he had to suffer and die. On Easter morning, we celebrate Christ's resurrection from the grave. And this highlights 
really our fourth point, which is that Jesus' suffering and death were necessary as well so that he could rise from the grave and defeat the power of death. See, death entered the world because of sin. And because sin has infected every single person, all are condemned to death. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death came through sin, so death spread to all men, for all have sinned. Without Jesus' death, there is no resurrection from the dead. And without the resurrection, there is no defeating the power of death. And without the defeat of death, there is no hope of salvation for us. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He became flesh and blood. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Paul writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning verse 55, says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the cross stripped Satan and sin of the power of death for all who would believe. Christ had to suffer and die so that he could rise again and defeat death. Death could not hold him. The grave could not contain him. But he had to suffer and die to demonstrate that. There's a fifth reason. It was to demonstrate God's love. Christ's suffering and death wasn't just a demonstration of his power over sin and death. It was also necessary to demonstrate his great love for us. A verse that is so very familiar to us, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Likewise, Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some might die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Christ's death and his suffering were necessary to demonstrate the depths of God's love. It's one thing to tell someone you love them. It's an entirely different thing to demonstrate it to them. In fact, there is no greater demonstration of love. Jesus himself said that. In John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this. Than what? He laid down his life for his friends. Jesus actually amped that up one notch because he laid down his life for his enemies, which was us. Now let me ask you a question. What is death? What is it really? At its core, what is death? 
It's separation, right? Separation from this world. It's separation of the soul from the body. But there's a second death, right? That's what Scripture teaches. And so what is that second death? Well, it's still separation. But in this case, it's separation from God and from the love of God. See, Jesus experienced this on the cross so we would not have to. When the Father turned his face away and Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just as Christ's suffering and his agony demonstrated the horrific nature of sin, it also helped to illustrate the horror of the second death of being separated from God. You realize that Christ did not cry out at any other time when they punched him, when they scourged him, when they beat him, when they spat upon him, when they nailed him to the cross, he didn't cry out. He uttered a cry of desperate pain when he felt the separation from the Father. Oh, that we would understand just a small amount of that pain so that we would never again pursue sin. But would only and always pursue Christ. Jesus' death and suffering purchased for those who believe an inseparable relationship with God and the eternal experience of his love. As Paul writes in Romans 8, 38 through 39, nothing can now separate us from the love of God. He says, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The sixth reason is closely related to that fifth reason. And that's that the suffering of Christ is intended to bring us into relationship with God. In Revelation, we read in chapter 5, verse 9, that Jesus Christ suffered and died to purchase us and to redeem us for God. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This was, as we've already said, the plan before the foundation of the world according to Revelation 13, 18. This relationship is unique in that we are now called children of God. We went from being enemies under his wrath to adopted children, family members of God. Paul writes in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that he might receive, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth a spirit of his own Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Romans 8 likewise explains that we have received a spirit of adoption as sons of God. And so Christ suffered and died that we might become children of God. It was in fact necessary that he suffer and die so that we could become children of God. The seventh reason flows out of our adoption as children of God. 
Because we have received this adoption, an adoption that was only made possible through the suffering and death of Christ, that he now desires to freely give us all things. You see, we had to be adopted in order for him to freely give us all things. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him now freely give us all things? The love of the Father desires to give to his children all things. Now don't misunderstand, this all things is not without limitation. The limitation is the context of Romans 8. Take the time to read Romans 8. Because it is rich and is full of what God has done for us. These are the all things that he has delighted to give us and to bestow upon us. Ultimately, it, the heavenly rewards. There is a realness to heaven, a reality to heaven that unfortunately is often missed. It is a physical place for us to long for, to enjoy, to long for the rest of heaven. And these things are the inheritance we will share in for eternity as children of God. We'll experience the love of God never separated from him as his children. There's an eighth reason that Christ had to suffer and die. It was so that he might take ownership of the world and open the scroll of Revelation 5. Take your Bibles with me and turn to Revelation 5. Listen to what takes place beginning in verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break the seals? No one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the book and to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look in it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne and with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands 
saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory, power, and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea. And all the things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Jesus' suffering and his death allowed him to fulfill the plan from eternity past, to take his role as king and sovereign over all creation. So that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. But it required that he suffer and die. The final and ninth reason we'll observe this morning for the suffering and death of Christ is that it was necessary in order to direct all praise and worship to God for all eternity. We've already looked at Revelation 13 and the plan for Jesus Christ to be slain before the foundation of the world. And part of that plan included the purchase of persons from every tribe, tongue, and nation. According to Revelation 5, which we just read, And this truth results in anthems of praise and worship to God in heaven. This truth is also expressed in Philippians 2, where Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 2.9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in the heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. John Piper notes, the ultimate purpose of the universe is to display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God. The highest, clearest, surest display of that glory is seen in the suffering of the best person in the universe for millions of undeserving sinners. Therefore, the ultimate reason that suffering exists in the universe is so that Christ might display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God by suffering in himself to overcome our suffering and being about that praise of the glory of the grace of God. So Christ had to suffer and die so that all creation would one day bow the knee and give worship and glory to God. Here's the warning, though. You see, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess But as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4, several different times and in several different ways, not every one, not every person will enter into his rest. Not every person will enter into the kingdom to come. Not every one will enter into the heavenly delights. But only those who bow their knee while it is still today. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. And you have a narrow gate and you have a broad gate. You have a broad and easy path. You have a narrow and hard path. You do not wait until you pass through that gate to choose whom you will serve. If you have not bowed your knee to Christ, I call upon you today to do it while it is still today. 
Do not wait for tomorrow. Do not wait until your eyes close this side of eternity and open on the next side of eternity to decide that you will bow your knee. Because it will bow. But it will bow on its way to judgment and eternal condemnation, separation from God and eternal pain and suffering. Or it will bow as you enter into rest and heaven and all that God has promised to those who love him and keep his commandments. The nine reasons for Christ's suffering we've looked at this morning are only the tip of the iceberg for why Christ suffered and died. But in these, they're enough to help us recognize that we can only rightly celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ if we begin to understand the reasons why Christ had to suffer and die in the first place. There's another quote by Piper I appreciate where he said, suffering is an essential part of the created universe in which the greatness of the glory of the grace of God can be most fully revealed. Suffering is an essential part of the tapestry of the universe so that the weaving of grace can be seen for what it really is. We would not see nor we understand the grace of God and the love of God without this suffering. Suffering and death of Christ was part of God's original plan and creation to bring him the greatest possible glory. The suffering of Jesus illustrates the wretchedness of sin while simultaneously demonstrating God's deep love for us. And as a result, it should elicit our highest praise and worship. The reality of Christ's suffering and death enables us to rejoice even greater as we proclaim this Easter Sunday, he is risen he is risen indeed. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for what your word teaches us about why Christ had to suffer and die. But Father, in light of that, we rejoice all the more this morning that we celebrate his resurrection, that power over death, and what an awesome light is cast upon the resurrection when viewed through the prism of why the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Father, thank you for your great love, which is so freely bestowed upon us, who not only are we undeserving, Father, we were your enemies. We were not passive bystanders. We were at war with you. Father, you sent your son to die for us. May that humble us. May that create within us a grief over our sin, a quickness to repent, to turn toward you. That we might have clean hands and a pure heart and worship as we discussed this morning. That is a sweet and fragrant offering. May our lives be lived in worship. May we sacrifice ourselves each and every day as living offerings. Father, thank you for just the joy we have as we celebrate the resurrection this morning. In your name, amen.